Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter of James, Wisdom for Wholeness. Here, James uses Old Testament wisdom literature, as well as teaching from his own half-brother Jesus, to call the church throughout the age to a life wholly devoted to God. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life, so as to make people complete in him. Let's turn to James chapter 5. Our text today is verse 19 and 20. Last two verses of James. We're going to start in verse 13, getting a little context. We'll go through verse 20 and we'll pray. We'll start in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. God, we humbly ask that you would be working in our own hearts. I pray this time that we would give ourselves over to listening to your word, and that your spirit would take these words and drive them deep in us, shape and fashion us for the sake of your glory. I pray you give us hearts to receive your word with meekness, lowliness, humility, so that we might know the joy and beauty of Christ. I pray that you would make us more like you, that we would love you, and then that we would love your people and love the world that you have sent us to. We ask for your work in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here last week, um, I took a, take a minute halfway through the sermon or so between verses 13 and 18 to show you that there's a transition, something where we kind of started looking from what was going on uh, in ourselves, praying for ourselves, uh, to start looking outwardly, confessing, praying for one another, a shift from piety to charity from love for God to love for others that are around us. Now, neither of those loves are exclusive. We understand that, right? If we do one, we love God and don't love others, we don't actually love God. And if we love others and don't love God, then we don't actually love others. Either of those shows that there's a problem, and it shows us that when we do that, it ends in a distortion in true Christian living. That's a problem. But James made that shift back in verse 16, if you remember that. He makes that command to confess to one another and to pray for one another. Uh, this was his command to us to not only look at our own hearts again, but to start looking out. What I want you to do is take a look at the end of 16, 17, and 18 for a moment. I'm going to read a little part of it. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And then it goes on to talk about Elijah and praying and, and God providing. I didn't say this last week, but I think it's very helpful as we get into our words in these last two verses here. 
It's helpful as we finish out chapter 5. This section, the end of 16, 17, and 18, are almost better understood as a parenthesis in the thought flow. James is going on, he's told us to do this and this, and he's told us confess to one another, pray for one another, and then he takes like almost like a step off to tell us this part. If you look at your Bible, you see that that kind of puts it together then in one big lump, 13 all the way through 20. This idea that we stopped at 18 for this section, like this parenthesis, doesn't mean that it's not important. In fact, it's quite the opposite. James thought it was important enough, he was making commands, commanding, commanding, and he stops off to say, the righteous person who's praying, it has great work. And then he gives us an example of Elijah. He thinks it's important for us to stop and understand this. Why do I bring this all up? We're at the last two verses. And if you look at your, again, if you look at your text, you're going to see that there's a paragraph break before 19 through 20. But if you look a little bit bigger, you'll see that there's big paragraphs breaks throughout where the translator stopped. They lump 13 through 20 all together. I think that's right. And I'll tell you why. He has turned from pray for yourself to pray for others to now he's going to say one more action for others. We're talking about how you love your neighbor as yourself. The section here, again, like I said, is kind of like a parenthesis helping us stop off to understand. But once we start back in in verse 19, he picks right up where he left off. As we finish today, it's important that you see that this is not an entirely new section. Like 19 through 20 is a different thing. He picks his pen back up and starts writing again. Rather, he's continuing. I want you to see that James' thought flow continues into 19 and 20. Last week we saw that this was done, how to love your neighbor, through confession to one another and for praying for one another. This week, James will give us one final action for how to love one another. The action, the outward loving action, is rescue. Now, you don't see that word there, but I think you'll eventually start to understand. I think that's probably the best English rendering of what's going on here. If any of you have ever uh, hiked, you've probably seen signs like this. You go along the trail, and a lot of the things will just say, stay on the trail. But then you have these fun kind of signs that say stuff like this, danger, open mine shafts, please stay on trail. That's a good reason to stay on the trail. Or stuff like this. I love this. I think a first grader did this illustration. It's really good. Falls can kill. Stay on trail. We get that. Like, uh, we should probably not go on the falls that will kill us. Or I love this one, like the dangers of poison ivy. Like, stay on the trail. You might get infected. Or this one. This one, uh, beware of snakes. Please stay on designated trail. Uh, we, we understand that we don't want to be bit and die out in the middle of the wilderness, so it's a good idea to stay on the designated trail. Also this one. I really like this one. Stay on the trail. It's very important. Now this one is one I've actually seen. This is at Crabtree Falls. Some of you have probably seen it as well. Danger. Stay on trail. Rocks are extremely slippery. Then get the last one. 30 people have died venturing off the trail. When I hike this with my kids, I say, don't be the 31st. Like, stay on the trail. Like, it's pretty straightforward and pretty simple, but yet somehow it's so hard to, to resist getting off the trail. In the Grand Canyon, uh, about each year, f- each year, about 5 million people come through. Of that 5 million per year, there's about 12 deaths within the, within the park. Now, they're from very natural means, some from heat exhaustion, some from medical problems, some from car crashes, some from drowning, some from all kinds of different things. 
But the thing that's most stark is that each year, there's two to three deaths each year from people falling into the canyon. And if you ask any park ranger, they'll tell you almost every one of them is because someone has gone off the trail. They have not obeyed the signs. They didn't stay on this side of the railing. They decided to go off, whether it's for some sort of special selfie or some grand idea or scheme, and people fall to their death two, three, four hundred feet down. It's terrible. It's devastating. But this is the idea that comes behind not staying on the trail. In the summer of 2017, there were two teenage boys who got off the trail in the bottom of a canyon somewhere. They followed a dry riverbed up and looked and looked and looked, and they could not find the trail again. This was supposed to be a day hike for these two guys in, uh, in high school, and uh, they could not find it. In desperation, they start trying to figure out they have to spend the night. The next day, they're looking and looking and looking. This goes on for five days. They had two granola bars to live on, and they went from puddle to puddle to puddle to try to keep alive. Now, this story ends well because of a rescue team that came to get them. The chopper comes in, they were picked up, and they really saved them from certain death. Like, they're going to they're gonna expire eventually. They don't have anything else to eat, they're going to die. This is a victory story, right? Because the search and rescue team goes out, they find them, and they rescue them. On average, just in the Grand Canyon alone, there are over 2,000 search and rescue operations each year, totaling somewhere around the tune of $4 million to just carry out these rescue missions. Now, rescue is very expensive. It's costly. It's a difficult job. Think of it, these men and women who brave the elements, sometimes in bitter cold, sometimes in extreme heat, and all these natural disasters going along where they, people will jump in to rescue these people. As a society, and I'd probably say even, we kind of know this, as image bearers, we realize that it is worth rescuing someone who is in danger. We are okay with the cost. It doesn't bother us. We're thankful and supportive of those who make a profession out of being a rescuer. Those that rescue others from death are certainly heroes in our minds. We're very thankful for that. They go out of their way to do uncomfortable things with no guarantee that their mission will be successful. But why? Why would they spend so much resource? Why would they spend their life giving it over to this, putting themselves in harm's way? When asked about the high cost of search and rescue in the Grand Canyon and the surrounding area, the sheriff of uh, Coconino County, Arizona. Jim Driscoll said this, we provide a service and the cost doesn't matter when you're talking about a human life. It's very interesting for our context. We know that rescue is a worthy cause. We innately know what's on the line, life and death. In our passage today, James wants us to know that there will be times when members of our church will not stay on the trail. And it is every bit as dangerous except far more. It's looking at an eternal way. They will wander from the truth. And when they do, they are in great danger. James wants us to see this is a serious matter. And like the Grand Canyon search and rescue team, we know what's on the line. Life and death. But for us, it's even more so. We're talking about ultimate life or ultimate death. Let's look at verse 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's start at the beginning. Who's he talking to? 
Like, who is he addressing here? We've seen this before. My brothers. And then he says, if anyone among you. James is talking to Christians. He's talking to believers in the congregations that he's, that he's writing to. He is talking to Christians about Christians. What's happening here? The wording here is purposefully open. If you looked at this, you'll see there it says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders the truth, someone brings him back. That's a helpful rendition for us. We understand that. However, the same Greek word is used from the first one to the second one. The reason that's important is because it's saying if anyone wanders away or if anyone goes to rescue them or it could be someone who wanders away and someone who goes after them. The idea here is that there's not an elite class of people that go after people, like that like they're especially trained for that alone. Or likewise, the other way, it's not only a certain group of people that wander away, it's anyone in the congregation Likewise, it's also anyone who can rescue these, this group here as well. James says it doesn't matter if you're prominent or lowly, if you're old or young, Jew or Gentile, elder or just a new convert, if anyone wanders from the truth. But what about the next part, this idea of wandering from the truth? What is this? Most of us, I would guess, would go straight to doctrine right? Like making sure that they keep with the truth, making sure that their statements are correct, that they claim the right things, that they're following up properly and making sure they affirm the good statements of faith. They don't want them to accept some heretical view on the Trinity or something like that. That, that. that certainly is a wandering from the truth. We'd all agree on that, no problem. And we should be ready and willing to bring a brother back who is uh, you know, in violation of the truth of Scripture. But let's think like James thinks for a minute. Remember his context. If you remember, he's already used this word twice in his little sermon here. In verse 1, I'm sorry, in chapter 1, verse 18, he said that God brought us forth by the word of truth. The word of truth, remember this is almost most certainly a clear reference to the gospel. If a believer is denying any part of the gospel, then they are in clear violation and they are wandering from the truth. Again, a lot of us will jump to like, okay, what are the six parts of the gospel? And if anyone is doing any of those and they're not affirming this part, then they're in trouble. Let, let's also think a little broader to the way Paul talks about this. You guys remember this. He shows countless times through his letters that any practice that diminishes the value of the cross is heretical and it's dangerous. Any practice that places trust in methods or hard work or rituals, or tradition, or good laws even. Anything that puts trust in that instead of Jesus Christ alone is heresy. And it's wandering from the truth. Galatians 3.3, you guys know this one. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Like, you understood it in conversion. You understood that you needed Christ in conversion, but now you think that you can work it up in your salvation and your sanctification. You can work it up and somehow, if you just follow the right rules and methods and regulations, that somehow now you can bring yourself to be perfected in Christ? How foolish, Paul says. In other words, we're not just talking about the moment of conversion here. We're not talking about that just only in the gospel. We're talking also about living according to the truths of the gospel. That Jesus is the only thing that matters. Not our adherence to the law or uh, the way that we can bring our good works to him to prove ourselves that we're acceptable or worthy. We've got to live like God's grace is all that we have. 
and that our salvation is not somehow perfected by us walking better and doing more methods right and uh, bringing the right types of sacrifices to him. So we understand this is someone who will be walking from the truth if they don't live as though the gospel is enough. But that's not all. James also uses the word truth again in 3.14. He says this, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not, be, do not boast and be false to the truth. James has shown us a whole host of problems in the congregation. We've done five chapters now, seen a different thing after different thing after different thing. He's talked about partiality. He's talked about the many sins of not taming the tongue. He's talked about quarreling. He's talked about passions inside us that war against each other. He's talked about the misuse of wealth and exploitation of the poor. He's talked about jealousy and selfish ambition, all taking the good gifts of God and turning them for our own desires. And in this statement, he sums up so many of our problems and shows us that to live with these sins as a consistent walk is to walk away from the truth. To James, wandering away from the truth is not something that happens in the realm of statements or denial somehow of the truth. What James is talking about, rather, is that we cannot have just mere hearing of the word or a mere uh, affirming of that in word, but rather we know from James that the proof is in the doing. We understand that faith is not in and of itself, like that's not the end. We know that works will follow. That is in keeping with what God has made us to be. He calls us over and over again to be doers of the word. What I'm saying is this, that a person is most likely to show that he is wandering from the truth before you can hear him say he is wandering from the truth. James goes on. He says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, what does this mean? For someone to bring another person back to the way of truth. I don't think this is overly complicated. It's just hard. Uh, None of us want to do it. It's not comfortable. It doesn't really uh, give us the warm fuzzies. No one's like, yeah, I'll sign up for the, uh, the old confrontation ministry. Super fun. None of us want to do it, but let's talk about it for a minute. To bring someone back from the truth, or to the truth, excuse me, is to lovingly, humbly confront someone, telling that person of the truth and the fact that they are wandering from it. Some know that they're wandering, and they just need someone to get in their face and say, hey, brother, get back to the truth. Trust Jesus Christ. Stop living the way that you're living. Others may be immature, or they're hard in their hearts, and they don't know, and they need someone to come along and tell them, hey, you're wandering from the truth. Come back to Jesus. This person needs to know that they are in danger and that the best thing for them is to turn back, to return to the way of truth. When James says that someone brings him back, he is saying that this person has repented and returned to following Jesus. Now, not perfectly, we know that, but they have submitted themselves to his lordship and have come together with the community, the the body of Christ, to live in fellowship. Verse 19 is giving us a scenario. It's giving us the first half of an if-then statement. We're getting the idea of this, if this is true, then this. 
We know this kind of structure. We use this. Like if a mom says, if you make your bed and clean up your room, then you can come down and have breakfast. Or maybe the doctor says, if you stay off that foot this week, then next week we'll probably be able to get you back into some therapy. Or perhaps it's like a financial counselor who says, if you're to put your money in good funds and wise things, then you'll probably get some sort of good return out of them. We understand this. But the difference is that this statement isn't one that comes from a mom or a doctor or a financial counselor. It's from God. James gives us a look into a kingdom ledger and preaches from a truth that will not change. The mom, the doctor, and the financial counselor might be right most of the times. They're good things to live by. Uh, But James gives us wisdom that will never fail. Verse 19, again, is the first half. It's the if in the if-then statement. He says, if anyone in the church wanders away from the truth and someone brings him back, then, verse 20, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Here's the then in this if-then statement. James says this results in the salvation in the covering of sins. The salvation from death. If we don't get this, I'll just say it. This is a big deal. This is huge. This is the idea that a rescuer understands what's on the line between life and death. We said it before. The rescuer has saved a life, this person in this passage. Now, we're not talking about just here on earth. We're talking about eternally they have saved this life. The rescuer has brought a person back to fellowship with God or for the first time, this person might actually know what it means to know Christ and they were not ever a genuine believer. And now you call them back to this truth, and they accept Christ and are saved. This is also what we could be talking about. Do we understand the beauty then of this rescue? The loving confrontation that we see here has led the wanderer to realize that he has offended a holy God. And that if he stays in this position, he will be destroyed. We know this from earlier on already. In 4.12, James tells us there is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and destroy. A person who is brought back to the truth has been saved from the potential of a judge condemning him for his wandering. James says that this person's soul will be saved from death. The wanderer also knows something else. He has stacked up for himself a multitude of sins against a holy and just God. Anyone who understands a holy and just God knows and understands their great need for a covering for their sin. There is a beauty here that we didn't catch in the first benefit. More than just saving, that's a wonderful thing. But this is different. There's a covering of sin so there can be a reconciliation to the Father. It's not just you were saved out of this death and put over in a corner. You were reconciled to God because of Jesus' atoning blood. And now you have friendship again with God because of what Jesus did. This is glorious and beautiful. The rescuer has shown the wanderer that in his wandering, he has turned his back on Christ. The rescuer says, Turn back, look to Jesus, the wonderful Savior and Lord who makes atonement for your sin. When we talk about covering, we're not talking about like putting it to the side so no one can see it. We're talking about covering it with the blood of Christ and it has been paid for. We're talking about that he is yelling out, 
Only Jesus can bring peace with God. The rescuer, by the way, has no merit in and of himself. He can't actually save them. He can't actually cover their sin. He has no ability to do that. What he is doing is leading the wanderer back to the good shepherd. That is being a rescuer. That is bringing someone back to the way of truth. This text is two short verses. This text is for us. It's kind of easy to think like, man, there must have been some stuff going along where people were wandering away from the truth. Let me remind you, if we are concerned that they somehow were in a worse spot than us, then we are surely the more foolish people. I would like to give you three pastoral thoughts on, this, on these two little verses. Number one, you and I must stay on the trail. What I mean, you and I ought to be very careful about wandering from the truth. James's point here is about the rescuer, but don't miss what's underneath this. Nathan read it earlier. You too could be tempted. This is very real. Remember that anyone or someone, anyone in here could be susceptible to this very wandering that he speaks of. As we discussed earlier, this is not only denial of truth claims or like everyone here affirms the faith correctly. That's, that's great. That is great. I'm, ex- I'm, I'm very happy about that. However, what he's far more concerned with is that you actually believe it. So much so that you trust God and live it out in obedience, in action. This is our practice, our walking with Christ day in, day out. James says that it can be happening to anyone. And don't think for a moment that you are immune to this kind of serious wandering. And if you're tempted, I want you to hear this. If you're tempted to think that wandering is a small thing, oh, you know, they, they're teen years, they just kind of wandered away, they'll eventually come back. Let me reassure you, it's not a small thing. Why? Because of the holiness of God. I would even venture to say someone who says that wandering is not a big deal may not know God at all. So hear me when I say this. His holiness is like nothing that you and I have ever seen. He is very great, perfect in holiness and purity. And the stain of rebellion and sin always offends him. Always. His character is so perfect, he cannot stand sin. He will crush it. If you think for a moment that wandering is okay with God, think again. Remember that only if a wanderer will return to the way of truth and trusting him will he be saved. So brothers and sisters, point number one is simple. Don't wander from the truth. Watch out for your soul. Number two, you and I ought to prepare to be part of this search and rescue team. This is a way for us to love one another. It is certainly not the only way. We understand that. But if we decide to not be on the confrontation team, we're not going to take part in this. I don't really want to do that. It's really not comfortable. We're not loving our neighbor. This is possibly one of the most loving ways, saving someone from death. Do you think those people think that it's loving for the rescuers to come down and pull them off the cliff? Yeah, they get it. They understand the self-sacrifice. They are almost eternally grateful. This is even more so. We're talking about ultimate death. This is an act of love for you and I to take part in. 
James is showing us that love for your neighbor doesn't stop at confessing to one another or praying for one another. He shows us the great value in saving a life. You and I would want the same thing. We understand what it would mean if we were to be rescued. We would want the same thing. I realize that this is not comfortable. Something that, again, I said, no one wants to be doing this on a regular basis. But again, the stakes are so high, guys. Life and death. If a believer has wandered from the truth, you need to talk to them. You need to lovingly talk to them and say, I see sin in your life. This is a serious offense before a holy God. If you know a fellow believer right now that's guilty of this, that is veering from the truth, I'll give you a few steps. First, pray for your own heart, not to be judgmental, and that you'd have grace. Number two, pray for their heart, that God would soften it, that the Spirit would be working for obedience and to turn in repentance and faith to Him. Third thing, number three, go and talk to that person, preferably in person. Tell them, talk to them. Tell them that you love Christ and that you love them and that you are there to call them back from their wandering. No one said this was easy, but it's a rescue mission. Life and death is in the balance. Call them to faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can't rescue them, but Jesus can. Call them to their good shepherd who's compassionate and merciful. Brothers and sisters, be ready to rescue and be willing to get out there and do it. Number three, I want you to remember the ultimate rescuer. Remember, you and I cannot save or cover sins. The good shepherd can. Uh, I'll go back to the Old Testament first. The Old Testament is full of God calling his people to return or to bring back, to come back to God for reconciliation. In Deuteronomy 30, Moses is preparing the people as he is going to be done his ministry. And he tells them what's going to happen in the future. He tells them, you're going to walk away. You're going to wander. And the Lord is going to chasten you as well. And you're going to come to a moment when you realize he was enough. And what you need to do is return. Listen to what he says. Moses says, And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart, with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord God has scattered you. That's the first one here in the Old Testament. The second one I want to bring your thoughts to is Hosea. If you know anything about Hosea in the application of this life that he had to live, it is a picture of constantly a husband calling back a wayward or a wandering wife. And as Hosea does, he is constantly calling Israel, Judah, to return, to come back. In Hosea 14, 1 and 2, he says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. In verse 7, then he says this, They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. God is all about this, but let me give you one of my favorites. Matthew 18, coming from Jesus Christ, giving us this parable, illustrating his great love and willingness to rescue us. He says this in verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does, not, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one who went astray? 
And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the other 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. We know Matthew 18 usually for a different reason. The next section is the section on church discipline. How to go and confront someone and tell them you're in sin. I love you, brother. Repent. And if they don't listen, what do we do? We bring another along together. And we eventually end in, in excommunication if this person and brother will not listen. So at the outset of all that is this little parable about the sheep, about the shepherd going, the good shepherd, merciful and compassionate, going out and rescuing that sheep. Our good shepherd loves and calls us to himself. Were it not for his great love, we would be forever lost in our wandering. He is the great rescuer. So let, let me say from that, let us worship him, but also let us follow him. James shows us how to do that. This is part of what it means to be a believer, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbor, our brother, as ourselves. So guys, we have to be willing to do this, and then we need to practice it. If we see this, we need to lovingly do this. Perhaps in this service, maybe this passage, maybe the worship time together has called us, and maybe it's called you to return. Maybe you know that you are running and wandering. Can I say as your brother, return to Christ. Trust him and him alone. He is so good. He is the good shepherd. He is glorious. He is good. He is compassionate and merciful. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would help us to take this to heart. It is another way for us to love our neighbor as ourself. James has slowly brought us along this way and we realize that we need to listen to him because he is speaking words of life. He's speaking the words of Jesus. He's telling us to act like Jesus acts. Jesus, we worship you today. You are the great rescuer. You are a great and kind and merciful king. We ask that you would be the king of our life that we would obey. Help us to be willing and ready to be rescuers of our brothers, that we love them with the affection of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For other sermons on the book of James and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.